I'm starting a three-part series today called Walking in the Truth, which I'm very excited about. And we're going to be taking a lot of looking, uh, we're going to look a lot out of 1 John and the book of Jude in the New Testament. I'm really excited about Jude. It's a little bitty book. It's a terrible little book. <laughs> Lots of fire in it. Um, but um, today we're going to most emphasize 1 John. And, and the, the inspiration from this title actually comes from one of the other letters of John where he says that I have no greater joy than this than to know that my children are walking in the truth. So that is, that is my heart for you today. Um, and, and the thing about 1 John is he, he gave a few different reasons as to why he wrote these letters. Um, one of them was that, uh, was it so that, um, so that his little children would not sin. Number one. Number two is that so people may be safe and protected from deception and false teaching that was starting to spread around in the church. And then at the end of the book, he says that I write to you who know, who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. So, not sin, protection from deception, and knowing that you have eternal life. And that's what I'm going to be covering over the course of these three weeks, and that's how we're basically splitting up each week. But um, 1 John, the reason, too, I really thought of this title, Walking in the Truth, is that I believe that we are in the generation that will witness the return of Jesus Christ. And the main thing, I have a series on that, by the way, <laughs> that explains why I believe that. <laughs> um, the, the, the main thing that Jesus and the apostles warned the churches of that would come in the last days is deception. Deception. And they were constantly writing to them to remind them of truths and, and, and to protect them from false teaching that was creeping even into the church at that time. And friends, I tell you that that first century church was already experiencing seeds of deception that are going to ripen over these next few decades at unimaginable levels. Good news is, we believe in Jesus. We have the spirit of truth living inside of us that can guard us and protect us from what's coming and to release life and truth to the world so that they are pulled out of darkness. So, but sometimes we need to be reminded. So, I want to um, give you just an overview of 1 John today. And, and, um, and I've got a lot of notes on the whiteboard. I really encourage you to take notes, to write these down, and that this week that you start reading through 1 John in light of this overview that we're doing today. And I want to go ahead and credit um, one of my favorite teachers in the body of Christ is David Pawson. And um, <laughs> the majority of this outline is inspired by him. You know, um, but um, I, I, I love that man, and uh, I highly recommend his book, Unlocking the Bible. He gives an overview of just every single book of the Bible, and it, it just, I love it. So, um, so take notes, jot some things down today, and, um, and let's get going. Let's just read from 1 John, the first few verses, kind of wet our appetites a little bit. 1 John, it's just a few books right before the book of Revelation, which is my favorite, and Song of Solomon, and the Gospel of John, and Hebrews. A lot of favorites. First John 1, verse 1. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, and the life was manifested, that we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested in us. What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be complete. This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the living word, the words of life that come out of the mouth of your son, Jesus. And I pray this morning, Lord, that you would come and speak to our hearts with the word of truth, that you, the God of light, would shine the light 
of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of your Son into our hearts today. That you would remind us of the truth of your Son. You would remind us of what we said yes to. And Lord, our hearts would be free from any infiltration of darkness that has tried to oppress our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So, that's my message title for part one, by the way. God is light. God is light. There is no darkness in him at all. I love that verse. Anyway, so I want to talk to you a little bit about 1 John. First of all, it's a very warm letter, very personal. Now, in your New Testament, you see letters that are written to entire churches. You see letters that are written to small groups of people, and you see letters that are written uh, to individuals. And so this one's kind of right in between a small group of people that, or, or, or a group of people at least that John knew very well, knew personally. So, and you see that it's just laced with love all throughout his letters. And um, some have called them very fatherly letters. He's addressing his children a lot. But by this time, John is probably in his 80s or 90s, so it may be more appropriate to call it a grandfatherly letter, writing to his kids and grandkids. So John was the only one of the 12 apostles of Jesus' original 12 to die of old age. All of the others were, uh, were, were martyred. And, um, and I believe it's John that he survived like boiling tar. Is that correct? Yes. So, this man, he just, <laughs> death has no hold on me. Amen. He looked after Mary, the mother of Jesus, in the city of Ephesus. Right as Jesus was dying at the cross, he pulled John, who was also called the beloved disciple, and he said, look, I want you to take care of her. This is your mother. Mother, this is your son. And so, he had a very close connection with Jesus. Um, he was one of his, probably Jesus' best friend, one of his closest, most intimate friend, and, and the caretaker of his mother after he died. So that's why, you know, it opens up. He's saying, I saw this man, I heard him, I've seen him, and I want to talk to you about him. So, he wrote the Gospel of John, he wrote the letters of John, and also the book of Revelation. And some commentators have, have questioned whether or not the Apostle John actually wrote some of these letters, because it doesn't explicitly say his name. However, you compare it to his Gospel, and it is the same vocabulary, the same style, very similar features of the Gospel. And, and the major feature that's similar between this letter and the Gospel of John are the absolute contrasts that John gives. Let's look at a few of them. Here's where you'll find these all throughout the book of 1 John. I would encourage you to, to circle them in some kind of color. I, I, I carry colored pencils with my Bible. It, it takes a little time, but um, it's fun. It makes your Bible a little more colorful and interesting to read. So, <laughs> who said the Word of God can't be fun? Amen. So, contrast. Life and death, light and darkness, truth and lies, Love and hate, righteousness and lawlessness, the children of God and the children of Satan, love of the Father and love of the world. And what's interesting to notice about this is it's very black and white. John's not leaving a lot of, or really any, gray area or middle ground when he's describing these things. He says, you're either on this side or you're on this one. And that's very important for us today because we're living in an age of relativism where absolutes, absolute truths and absolute moral standards are unpopular, considered intolerant, and considered, what's the word I'm looking for, um, unrelatable, irrelevant to the culture today. And, and that was happening even in the Greek culture that John was writing to at this time. However, John is saying, even though the world is, 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 is blanketing these absolutes and, and creating a lot of gray area, I'm writing to you guys so that you know that these are absolute truths and contrasts. And I'm going to teach you how to find whether you're on this side or on this side. So that... If you're on this side, you can run to Papa in confidence and get back on this side. Or, if you're on this side already, that you can stay confident and assured that you are God's son. You're God's child. So, who is John writing to? He's writing to three groups of people. He's writing to little children, young men, and fathers. And I don't believe these are talking about literal age groups, although many churches have old people and babies. <laughs> 
only the young people thought that was funny. <laughs> um, no offense, elderly. We love you, and we need you. So this is, I believe, talking about spiritual ages. Spiritual ages of people in the faith. The little children, he says, have come to know two things. First of all, they've come to know forgiveness. Forgiveness of sins, washing by the blood of Jesus. Very important foundational truth upon entering the kingdom of God. Secondly, they know God is Father. Papa, Daddy, Abba, Papa. And, they, and they're learning to come boldly and confidently to the Father as sons and daughters. They receive that spirit of adoption that cries out, Abba, Father. And I just want to say on this that, that you know, this revelation of God of Father... Papa has been so kind to restore this truth to us, really, in even the past couple of decades. 1994, some of you may be familiar with Toronto and the outpouring that happened up there in Canada. God as Father was the main revelation that God was highlighting that started in this little church, Toronto Airport Christian Fellowship, and spread across the entire world. And so some people have been coming into the kingdom, you know, some that came in 50, 60 years ago, did not quite have the depth of this level of revelation of the Father's love that God has highlighted right now. And so I'm excited about this, this, this what, what I get to um, partake of and what this new harvest of souls is going to come in. They're going to know forgiveness and they're going to know God as Father powerfully and much more quickly than some of us that have been walking this out for a long time. Amen. Young men, these are more mature believers that have grown strong. They know the scriptures. They've taken time to study, to meditate, to pray, to digest the scriptures. And they've had victory over their first battles with Satan. It's made them strong. And that's good news. You know, some of us have recently come into the kingdom of God. We're like, Daddy, Papa God, we love your grace and mercy. Oh, I'm so happy now. And then a day or a week later, it's like that first battle with Satan comes. Like, oh, man, I thought all my troubles were washed away and trouble's right there in front of me. Um, but um, but as, we, as we grow and mature, when we, we, sometimes our, our tendency is to accuse God and to cower away from those battles. But God's saying, look, I have equipped you and I prepared you and empowered you by my spirit to overcome the evil one. So do not be afraid. Makes you strong. Fathers, men who are mature in the faith, and it talks about both their length of experience and their depth and their growth in the knowledge of God. Um, and we are in need of fathers in the church. Fathers and mamas, papas and mamas that have grown mature, that have grown strong. And, and this isn't, again, this isn't just talking about age. Because some people are in their 70s, 80s, and 90s and are believers, but actually they're spiritual children. They haven't matured much at all since the day they gave their lives to Jesus. Um, it does not have to stay that way. But um, these are the people John's addressing. And, you know, we're, we're, we're in a culture that day where there was a strong male emphasis. But I want to I say something about that is that um, I believe that the Holy Spirit's behind that as well. Because when there's something about when the men of a church are strong, the church are strong. The church is strong. And I'm not downgrading women by any means. I am all for women rising up in their, their giftings and their purpose and their identity in the church and outside of the church. But I don't know how many mothers that I've met that are crying out for their husbands and for their sons to wake up. Amen. Guys, quit warming the pew. Get up. <laughs> Seriously. When, when, when the man of a family starts growing strong in the Lord, it affects the wife and the children. And so power to the praying moms and daughters that have been calling in and calling us to wake up because <laughs> we need it. Um, and, and Bob Jones, I like, he, he put it this way. He's a prophet. He was saying a lot of people have been saying that women are going to come alongside of the men. He said the opposite's actually true. That's right. The men are going to start coming alongside of the women. The women are already there. <laughs> the women are already growing in the spirit and the knowledge of God. They're already growing strong in the gift of intercession. Rick Joyner had a visit into the throne room of heaven, and most of the people closest to the throne of Jesus were praying moms. So ladies, don't back down. Don't hide behind some guy's gifting. But I'm saying, men, get out of the chair. Go deep in the knowledge of God and rise up as to who you are as sons of God. Amen? I think that was worth being said. So, 
Why? Why is John writing this letter? Um, you can break it up into a couple of different ways. Um, I love David Pawson. He is the king of alliteration. <laughs> so everything always starts with the same letter. First of all, he writes that they may be satisfied, that their joy may be full, that they may be sinless, that they may not sin, that they may be safe from deception that was spreading around in the church. And last of all, that they may be sure and know that they have eternal life. And I have the verses there for you if you want to write those down. Hopefully you can see those. Um, but another way to divide them up is uh, in five different ways. To promote harmony, to produce happiness, to protect holiness, to prevent heresy, and to provide hope. I like it. This is less to remember, so I go with that one. <laughs> so, um, and one of the biggest dangers I believe that the church faces over every single decade is false teaching and deception. And there's, there are a lot of, you know, what, what John was facing in that day is that a lot of itinerant preachers were starting to go around and visit the churches. And, 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 and some of them, very good, very powerful, strong, prophetic exhortation. But some people would come in, Jesus called them wolves in sheep's clothing, that was leading people astray. In fact, when Paul, he saw a major outbreak of revival in Ephesus and spent a couple of years there, one of the main things that he said as he was departing is he says, beware because there are some that are going to come in as wolves and seek to devour you. And there are lots of conferences and all kinds of teaching seminars that you can get online and all over the place today. And some of them are great. And I'm saying a lot of them are great. Go for it. That's powerful. But you've got to be rooted and grounded in the word for yourself and not just knowing what the guy coming into town has to say. Because some of it might not be good. Okay? So, you thought I was done with the whiteboard, but voila. <laughs> Ta-da! <laughs> I love, this is like a teacher's best friend right here. I love this. I love you, whiteboard. Just take a moment. Okay. Long enough to be enjoyable, short enough not to be awkward, right? So. <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> When was this book written? It was written somewhere between 90, 95 AD, probably closer to 90, um, because, uh, because in, the, in the 90s of that first century AD, there was a, a horrible outbreak of persecution that came under a Roman emperor named Domitian. And, uh, and John doesn't talk about any of that, any of his letters. So um, his, his primary concern was with false teaching. So my guess is that he wrote it before that started happening. He wrote it before he went to the island of Patmos. That's my, that's my thoughts. You may have different, but that's okay. 90, 95 AD. So the structure of this book is a little difficult to break up in a linear fashion. And uh, John talks in a very cyclical, circular way. And, uh, and, and, and the difference with Paul, you read Paul's letters, very line by line, very systematic. Okay, Romans 1, all Gentiles are fallen. Romans 2, all Jews under the law are fallen. Romans 3, all are fallen. Romans 4, but we have faith. Romans 5, and the faith has led to righteousness. Romans 6, and righteousness makes you overpower sin. Romans 7, oh, but we're in this wrestle against sin, this war against sin. But Romans 8, oh, I have the power of the Spirit to overcome it. Then Romans 9 through 16, and this is why Israel is important. And then the rest of it, he's like, and this is why you should stop judging each other and treat each other like normal human beings and actually love each other. <laughs> Overview of Romans in 30 seconds. <laughs> you can go home and read that and have fun too. So John, however, he kind of juggles between these different um, topics. And um, that could be that he is a fisherman. He's uneducated. Paul was very educated. He was a lawyer, so he, he spoke like a lawyer. Um, but most of all, and we, I mean, John's Jewish. He's a Jew. A Jew here? <laughs> Some people caught that movie reference. Um, and, and Jewish wisdom literature is written very similar, similarly. Similarly. Similar. Whoever made that word, like, <laughs> seriously? <laughs> 
Similarly, that's what I'm going to say because it's easier. <laughs> Similarly, um, wisdom, Jewish wisdom literature is written in the same way. They're saying, okay, on one hand, we're going to talk about the book of Proverbs like this. We're going to talk about being lazy. Don't be lazy. It's not good. Then on the other hand, watch out for that adulterous woman. She's going to creep in. She's going to seduce you. And then on the other hand over here, don't shout in the morning because your neighbor is going to really not like it. Okay, back to sluggishness now that we're talking about sleeping. You know? <laughs> oh yeah, that reminded me of something I forgot to say about the adulterous woman. And it's just, it's like you have to comb through the whole book and get random verses everywhere to have a, have a sermon on, on laziness or, 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 or avoiding seduction. So... Um, but the uh, book of James is written like this too. But anyway, here are the main themes that John goes through and, uh, and kind of juggles through. So I've got this circle here. Um, life, love, and light. These are the positive attributes that characterize God and the children of God. Then on the bottom, we have lawlessness, lust, and lies. These are topics that characterize Satan. And his children. And John is saying, here's how you recognize children of God and children of the devil. I call this the northern heavenly hemisphere of glory. <laughs> and the southern hemisphere of worldliness and hell. <laughs> so, <laughs> the underworld. Um, and so, John, it's, it's this John is saying throughout his book, stay up here. Stay on, this, stay on the northern hemisphere. Don't migrate down here. There's, not, there's nothing fun to explore down there, I promise you. It's death. So, stay up here. Don't drift down there. And here's just a structure of the book that um, hopefully you can see if you want to write down. But life, chapter 1, light, lust. He goes negative, lust, lies, and lawlessness. Then back to love and light. And so, it's interesting how he sandwiches positive topics um, at the beginning and end with negative ones in the middle. It's like he's saying, do this, live this way, or this is who you are. By the way, don't do this. Don't live like this. <laughs> but don't forget to do this and remember who you are. And so it's just like this encouragement sandwich. So typically how Jesus did things too. So there you go. So as our father, who is a God of light, a God of love, and a God of light, we as his children are being exhorted in this book to embrace light, to express love, and to enjoy life. I really like that last one. Have fun <laughs> with life. <laughs> enjoy. Have fun. That's one of my main goals in life, to have fun. It's not fun. I'm either doing it wrong or I'm doing the wrong thing. So... Uniqueness of this book is it's the only book in the Bible to mention this phrase. God is love. God is love. I want that truth to sink into your hearts right now. God is love. Chad was singing during worship. His banner over me is love. Everything that God does in your life is out of a place of love. Every obstacle and circumstance that he leads you through is born out of a place of passionate love for you and desire to see that same love nurtured and grown into maturity in your heart. You know, no other religion can claim that God is love. Not even Judaism. At best, they can say God loves. But a person cannot be love himself unless he is a multiple yet co-equal God. We have Father, Son, Holy Spirit. All are fully God. And all of them are exchange, or have this divine love exchange amongst the three of them. They're all completely 100% God, but they all have a unique expression and relation to one another and to us. So at the same time that Jesus is the son of God, he's saying, when you look at me, when you see me, you see the father. He is the exact representation of God. Now, if you want to 
rack your brain a little bit, not only theologically, but, um, but it just intellectually and even your heart, I highly recommend Jonathan Edwards' essay on a trinity, essay on the trinity. And, he, in, and, and just in sum, he talks about Father God and then all of his thoughts and emotions and expressions are summed up in the person of Jesus Christ. So it's like you have Father God, but all of his thoughts, emotions, and feelings are so real and so unique that it actually forms a separate person. And that the Holy Spirit is the love that the two share. I thought it was kind of cool. Read John Edwards. It'll, it'll, um, you'll, uh, it'll blow your mind. So, only a triune God can be love itself. So why did God make us? Simply, God had a son that he loved so much that he wanted more sons. Love always wants to reproduce itself. So, he's a God of love. But, okay. So, let's look at what some heresy that John was confronting. And then we're going to talk about why that's important practically for us as Christians. Again, we're going to go more next week and the following week into some of these themes that we're talking about. But here's a good overview. Read First John this week. Highlight some of these words. Jot down what he's saying. Holy Spirit, show me more. Meditate on it. Pray it. But there was a major heresy um, or, 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 or seedbed of heresy that John was confronting as he was writing these letters. It's called Greek philosophy. Greek thinking. And it's infiltrated and, and affected much of the church even today. And what he was particularly confronting is uh, early forms of, of Gnosticism and, um, and, 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 and some other, other um, words that we'll go through. But, but the foundation of Greek philosophy that was infiltrating the church during the first century and even still is now is this separation between the spiritual and the material. They were so far distant that they had little to no connection or relation to one another. So he divided sacred, or Greek philosophy divided sacred and secular. It divided temporal and eternal. It divided body and soul. And that the two do not really coincide or affect each other that much, if at all. Um, some, of, some people you know, have this idea that if they work full-time in a church... They're a full-time worshiper or intercessor or pastor that, 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 that we see that in the church of, oh, he has a sacred, holy calling from the Lord. And we elevate that above people called to the marketplace. People called to open up a restaurant. People called to be a homemaker. People called to be a CEO of an organization. Um, I'll, I'll, you know, you can name it. And we say, oh, I, I work a secular job. I don't work in the church so sac where the sacred holy people work. I work a secular job. No, you don't. The only thing secular, the only, you only work a secular job if, you, if it's sinful or illegal. <laughs> so if you're a drug dealer, yes, you do work. A secular job, and you need to repent of it and get free from all the junk that's probably come on you as a result. <laughs> but um, that's why we're here, freedom, right? So, um, but your job as a, as, a as a musician or a singer at a church or as a pastor is just as sacred as, as anyone else that is called to the business or to the marketplace. That is a sacred, holy job and calling for your life. And, it, and Paul's talking about when we're in the workplace that we treat our bosses as if we were serving Jesus. <laughs> and some of us think, oh, I work a secular job. I can get away with treating my boss like crud and talking about him behind his back. No, you can't. <laughs> Jesus will say, why did you do that to me? And he'll say, I don't know what you're talking about. And say, what you did to him, you did to me. But on top of that, there is holy, it is sacred, whatever you're doing in the marketplace. And friends, if I can just be a little frank right here, I think we'd have a lot more money in the church if people called the business, actually went and did those business ideas that they did. <laughs> and said, oh no, it's too secular. I've got to, you know, do something a little more spiritual. No, it is spiritual. Do the thing that God has put in your heart and given you dreams and anointing for, and it will be sacred. It will be spiritual. 
and we'll have some money in the kingdom of God. And you can support people like me. I'm good soil. I am. Ask my partners, ask my family, ask my friends. Thank you. <laughs> Come talk to me afterwards if you want. <laughs> but we also have other missionaries and stuff here too, so support them. They're good soil. But I'm talking about me right now, so. <laughs> Sacred. <clears throat> so, Greek philosophy. I don't have it up here. Whiteboard, I love you, but I'm... I'm, I need to, no, I'll leave it. I'm just afraid I'll keep turning back to it, which I will, but I want to leave it for you, um, even though I'm done with it. So, Greek philosophy taught physical, physical evil, physical bad, spiritual good. Did I do the same sides? Did I say spiritual earlier? Did I switch up on you? Okay, spiritual. Spiritual good, physical bad. Spiritual good, physical bad. Um, an idea that anything physical is dirty. This has affected how we even talk about going to the bathroom. How many of you have been in to somebody else's bathroom and seen some type of reading material by the toilet? Come on. <laughs> okay. Um, how many of you have seen reading material in there that has anything to do with what you're actually doing in the bathroom? <laughs> you see scripture verses and magazines and... Lord of the Rings, Tolkien Companion. That's, your <laughs> That's my bathroom. <laughs> but it's like, it's even in a bathroom, it's a little taboo to talk about using the bathroom. <laughs> you know, um, I have a friend that, will, that is just commonly would come up to me and say, so I was pooping the other day, Matthew. <laughs> And the Lord spoke to me. <laughs> and all this revelation would come to him while well, he's taking a dump. <laughs> I can say that from a pulpit. Because everyone poops. There's a book on it, if you don't believe me. <laughs> Ladies, you poop too. Just admit it. I'm starting to think now how I'm going to respond to the emails that I'm going to get from them. <laughs> no. That will be how I respond. Everyone poops. So if you're going to shoot me an email, that's what I'm going to say to you. <laughs> that's why I talked about it from the pulpit. Um, but anyway, so my friend that receives all this revelation, he calls it going into the throne room <laughs> and receiving porcelain mysteries. <laughs> I like it. I think it's clever. It is really powerful revelation. So you can talk to Jesus while you're on the toilet. But you can also be, Jesus, thank you that my body is functioning properly. <laughs> thank you that everything came out okay and I feel much better and relieved and I'm ready to carry on my day. So I don't know about you, but when I've really got to go to the bathroom, I'm kind of in a bad mood. That's what I was doing right before I preached and I got in here just in time. <laughs> so <laughs> if you see water on me, it's from the sink, okay? <laughs> It's made this Greek philosophy of separating the spiritual and the physical has made sex such a taboo topic in the church. And you know what the fruit of that has been? An entire generation addicted to pornography. Because we've made it too shameful of a thing to talk about in the church that people are going to the world and are going to perversion to learn about it. And, I, and, 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 and sexual perversion has spread rampantly over even these past 20 to 30 years. And it will be one of the main sins that distinguishes Satan's kingdom in the end times. We've got to talk about these things. We've got to address them from a righteous and a fun perspective. No course joking, but... Um, we got to talk about these things. So, docetism was a heresy that, that formed out of this Greek philosophy that was within the church, and it taught that Jesus merely appeared to be in the flesh. He wasn't actually a human being, he just appeared to be. And, and the reason, but that the logic behind that thinking was that, that the physical is bad. And if Jesus is the Son of God, and if he's good, he could not have possibly actually been a human being. 
He could not have been a sin-corrupted creature. Um, it separates the human Jesus and the divine Christ. It says that Jesus was born a human being, but at his baptism, the Christ came upon him. And, the, and, 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 and his physical body actually became just an apparition. And the Christ was, a, was the divine son of God, but he had no physical um, nature to him whatsoever. And then at the cross, when Jesus says, into your hands I commit my spirit, the docetism teaches that, that, the, that the divine Christ, that the, the Christ departed from the man Jesus. And it was the man Jesus, sin corrupted Jesus that died, not holy, pure, divine Christ. Um, and, 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 and things like Christian science um, believe this new age will talk about this that the, the Christ can come upon you that any, anyone can have the Christ come upon them that's what it teaches and it sounds it's very subtle it sounds right it's like oh they're saying Christ oh they're saying Jesus oh they're saying da 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 but it is it is it is complete heresy and John is so pointed in how he talks about this heresy that he says anyone that does not confess that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has come in the flesh, in a human body, he is the Antichrist. It's pretty intense, John. Can't you say something like, oh, he needs to go back to seminary and take another course on Jesusology and sit through Jeremy Vince and Matthew and Marvin's teaching again um, that we did a few weeks ago. Um, <laughs> but um, he said, this is an Antichrist spirit. It is an anti-Jesus, an anti-God teaching. And I don't have time to go into why Jesus had to be fully God. Spiritual on this side. No. Had to be fully God. Had to be fully man. One person, two natures. Fully human, fully divine. And, and I may go into some of this next week. Um, but, um, but basically, is Jesus came to represent God to man. And he came to represent man to God as a mediator. And he cannot fully represent God to man unless he's fully God. And he can't fully represent man to God if he's not fully man. And he's got to be God in order to take on the sins of the entire world. And for his blood to have that kind of cleansing power. But he has to be man to stand in as a substitutionary sacrifice. To say, God, I'm receiving punishment on their behalf. I'm here in place of Matthew. So he had to be fully man. But then to Matthew, he says, Matthew, I'm here as God to impart his nature and his righteousness to you. And he cannot do that if he is not both. And he will be a man forever. A Jewish man. So, another subtle... Um, thing that is in the church that's been influenced by Greek philosophy, and I hear this phrase probably every month um, somewhere from believers that I respect and, and that know the Lord, and so I don't want to condemn you if you've said this phrase or you believed it, but, but I do want to address it. And it's this idea that God lives outside of time. That's not true. <laughs> and it's nowhere in the Bible. Um, it says God is everlasting. And what would be more accurate to say is that time lives within God. That it's contained within him. And so there's part of him up here over time, but he's still involved deeply in time. He set up the times and seasons. He changes them. <laughs> he intervenes directly in them. Um, and, and people get this idea that when we die, we go to heaven and we go outside of time. And, and that's just not true. And I have a couple of verses, and I'm sure there are more. But Revelation 4 says, The four living creatures in heaven cry out day and night. And I read a testimony from a man that went to heaven. Or not read it, it's on YouTube. Um, and, uh, and he said that when he was there, there was actually a 24-hour period in heaven. I found that very interesting. He said it didn't become dark, but the, the light slightly dimmed just a little bit. And time felt different up there because nothing decays. You know, we're like, we're, we're, we're getting old and we're like, God, wife, come on. I'm going to be 28 in two weeks, you know. 
<laughs> Jesus, husband, you know, come on, <laughs> ladies. Um, Jesus, breakthrough here, breakthrough there. And I think what most people mean to say it more accurate when they say God lives outside of time, what they really mean is God may not operate in your personal timetable. <laughs> he may not do things at the moment that you expect him to do it. He'll do it, but when he does, it will be within a real day in human history. And in a real moment in time, so you can say, at 3.03 p.m., a, a, a $10,000 check came in my name and it paid off all, these, all this debt that I owed. Amen. And you can remember how God intervened directly inside of time as a God who's very involved in our lives. Um, Revelation 8 says, John was in heaven and he says, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. You can check me out on that. I thought, this is just fun and interesting. Why is this important? Well, this, this idea of God living outside of time, eventually it progresses into a God living distant and far off and away from us. And that was Greek thinking. That's what the Greek gods were like. They lived outside of time. They were stoic and unemotional. And they had little personal involvement in the lives of the little people. But we serve a God who is very personal, very involved, very near to everything that's happening over you. The God that never slumbers or sleeps and that's hovering over you smiling day and night. It's good. John emphasizes the strongest physical senses to confront this heresy. We saw him, we touched him, and we heard him. Audibly. Saying, guys, I'm not making this up. I have seen the resurrected Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And I'm coming bringing a testimony that I've been preaching to you for 60 years, and I'll keep doing it till the day I die, he's saying. And you know, when we sing these songs about Jesus, I want to see your face, I want to feel your embrace. I mean those. I'm, I really mean those when I sing them to God. And, and I know many of you do too. But I, I want it to, to take a, a more real aspect. I want to see the, and touch the physical face and body of Jesus like John did. I want to lean on his chest and actually feel his physical heart that has blood pumping through his physical veins and his real physical resurrected body. And to feel the emotions that are coming out of him. Some people say, well, if you see Jesus, you might die. It's a good way to go. <laughs> he can bring me back. He did it to John in the book of Revelation. <laughs> Fell over as a dead man. But you know what he got to say after that? I just saw Jesus. I just saw Jesus. <laughs> and he's saying, come Lord Jesus. Come Lord Jesus. And when we see him and we encounter him and, and touch him in a physical manifest way, it produces a longing and a lovesickness in our heart that says, Jesus, I've got to have more of you. Jesus, I have to have you come back. Don't stay in heaven any longer. Split open the sky and come back for me. <sighs> Man, I can't wait to listen to my sermon. <laughs> I listen to my sermons more than anybody else's online here. <laughs> I'm sure all of you guys do it too with yourselves. And I noticed something a little funny is that, you know, I, I typically, and I don't mean for this happy, but what I preach, I wear like the same shirt. <laughs> and, so, and so today I was really conscious. I'm like, okay, I can't wear this one or that one. I have to wear purple or green. <laughs> so I, wore, I chose purple. My sister got me this shirt. This is my sweet sister. She's up here up front. I love her. Um, so why is, why is this important? So because everything boils down to what we're going to believe about Jesus. 
Um, and he's one man, he's one person, two natures, and, and, and it's absolutely essential to, to the atonement, to the forgiveness of sins, to the washing and cleansing. And um, this is, and, and when I say heresy, sometimes we throw around that word loosely, like, oh man, he quoted the Bible verse wrong, like that's heresy, or you know, he, he, he believes something weird about wearing ties at church, that's heresy, you know, that's not heresy. Um, heresy, by definition, is something that if people subscribe to that belief, it excludes them from salvation. It puts them in this camp. That's what church history calls heresy. Um, so, how do these Greek ideas affect the church? Well, they say what you do with your body, because Greeks' minds, again, separate body and soul, totally disconnected, totally unrelated, and they compartmentalize them. So what you do with your body has no effect in what happens to your soul and your spirit. Um, and people start thinking that sin doesn't matter in Christians. And some people will go as far to say that sin doesn't exist in Christians. That we are spiritual beings and we can sin as much as we want and it won't affect us. That is not true. Um, at baptism, our water baptism, we are clean and we are washed of all of our sins. All of those past sins that have been trying to haunt you and, 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 and the enemy has been trying to bring up in your life, when you went under the waters of baptism, those sins were washed away and forgotten. But there's something that we can do that will empower us to walk free of any potential future sins. And 1 John says it this way, that he who goes on confessing his sins, he is faithful, God is faithful and just to go on forgiving and cleansing. And there is such a power that comes from confession of sin, which I'm going to hit on in a few moments. But this Greek idea that nothing that you do with your body affects your soul leads to all forms of of, um, of immorality, of lawlessness, of spiritual elitism. I'm a Christian, I can sin as much as I want. But, um, but Romans 2, Paul says something very pointed to a church, to believers, where he says that um, he, in Romans 1, he's talking about the world, he's talking about Gentiles, he's talking about all the sin and gross immorality and, 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 and greed and anger and malice that they're involved in. And he opens up verse 2 and he says, how do you who judge those people yet do the same thing, think that you will escape the judgment of God. And he goes as far to say this, that he says, you are actually storing up wrath for yourselves in the day of judgment, who condemn people outside the church who do these things, yet do them yourself. Paul, let's get back to righteousness, justification. <laughs> he's, he's serious. Um, God doesn't overlook sin in believers or unbelievers. But as a believer, we have a way to deal with it. 1 John 5. This is the message, or 1 John 1. This is the message, and we're, we're going to close. This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light. And in him... There is no darkness at all. I'm going to read on. If we say we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie. We don't practice the truth. If we say, if, but if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we do. We have fellowship with one another and the blood of his son Jesus cleanses us from all sin. That's really good news. If we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, not only are we deceiving ourselves, but we're making God a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone does sin, this is really important, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the whole world. This is the message. Worship team, come on up.
God is light. And there is no darkness in him at all. There is no mixture in our Father. And there need not be in us either. If we are in him. The power of confessing our sins not only allows us to experience the confidence in our forgiveness and our relationship with the Father, but it cleanses us and breaks off the power of shame. Because even as a Christian, if we go on sinning habitually with no repentance, with no confession, with no turning away from it, that sin is going to bring defilement. It's going to bring shame on you. You're going to feel dirty because sin is dirty. And instead of running to God, people's tendency is to hide in fear and to be afraid that they can't come to God now because they're dirty. And then they start putting on this mask or this costume of everything's okay on the outside. But they have all this hidden darkness, all this hidden sin, hidden shame on the inside. They're afraid to talk about it. They're afraid they won't be accepted. They're afraid they'll be rejected. But, but what's, and so it leads to shame. It leads to fear of approaching God. And it leads to a sense of control and religious activity to make it look like everything's okay. Now, I was, I was 17 when I gave my life to Jesus. I was in church for like five years before I actually like surrendered to Jesus. Um, but um, a place of real repentance came when I was 17. And I felt life and I felt love and I felt, I felt the light of God enter into me. But I, there was still just all this stuff that I hadn't confessed to another human being. And, and it's important most of all to confess our sins to God and that we can have confidence that he's going to forgive us and cleanse us. But there's so much power in actually confessing your sins to another human being. And that's what John the Baptist and in the first century church, Jesus and, and the apostles, said people would come up confessing their sins to other human beings. And, and what I'm telling you today, that it's, that it's okay to come out of that place of hiding. Because when I started talking to people about a struggle with pornography, when I started talking to people about, about homosexuality and, and struggle with my sexual identity, when I started telling people about the rejection and the fear and the shame that I was feeling, the unforgiveness and the bitterness that had been in my heart from this hurt or that hurt, when I started getting these things out and open into the light, I could experience the love and the acceptance and the mercy of Father God and of my brother. And the power of shame. to lose its hold.